when peace is shattered in our personal relationships, a close friend lies about us, a spouse betrays us, or our life suddenly becomes filled with trials and stress. We feel it when we get angry. What's the root of all this hostility? Turn with our study leader, Dave Watson, to Romans 5, 1 through 11, and listen to what God has to say about peace, reconciliation, and hope. I know a lot of you have seen what's happened in the Gaza Strip. How many of you know what Hamas is? Hamas is the Hebrew word that means violence. Isn't that appropriate? It literally does. Like in Genesis chapter 6, when it says, And the Lord God looked down from heaven, and he saw that there was only Hamas continually. It's the word violence, the cruel violence. How many know what Fatah is? Those are the two Palestinian factions that fight one another. And Fatah is the group that America's backing. The Hamas is the group that's supported by Iran and a lot of terrorism. And you've got those two groups, actually two Islamic groups, that using automatic weapons on Gaza are blowing each other to smithereens. How many of you have just kind of shaken your heads about those kind of headlines this week, right? And then how many of you looked at the news this week and noticed that the main Shiite mosque, that already was bombed once, and if you saw it, there was just a little bit of the remains of two beautiful domes. You've all seen the beautiful dome, the Dome of the Rock in downtown Jerusalem or at the core of Jerusalem. But in Iraq, the main Shiite mosque had two of these beautiful domes. And what happened to them this week? They were totally blown up. Now when you look at the pictures of it, they're totally blown apart. And you shake your head and it says, I just can't believe those Islamic people. Anybody said that? They're so different than us. What about the streets of Dallas? Two pregnant women, one assaulted on the street, beat up, and her baby was murdered as a result of that beating. That's not in Iraq, not in Gaza. It's right here, right up the road. And another woman in a drive-by shooting, her little baby lost her life. So the violence isn't so far away. But you know what I find? The headlines in our culture, in fact, I do know that the media, because bad news is much more exciting, not nearly as boring as good news, that our newscast tends towards the, the violence, it tends towards the sensational. How many of you find yourself kind of being numb to those kind of headlines? How many of you feel like, I'm just not going to watch the news before I go to bed, I'll just turn off the TV, I'll just turn off the computer? You know, you're going to be able to do that until your own peace is attacked. Let's suppose one of your really good friends, somebody that you were at peace with, somebody that you felt was your closest, you know, diehard, you were blood brothers or blood sisters, and maybe you knew them from the time you were a kid, and suddenly they lie about you, and slander goes out, and it destroys that friendship, and your peace is gone. You can't turn off that headline, can you? What about when a spouse betrays you? A lot of you have gone through brokenness in marriage relationships. If someone that you thought was going to be with you forever and ever, suddenly they betrayed you. And your spouse, someone that you thought would always keep their promises, they broke the promises. And that internal, powerful hatred wells up inside of us. And we can't turn off that headline either. A lot of men in our church have suddenly got the news after a checkup that they have prostate malignancy. What do you think happens to your peace when that happens? 
Or some of you as men this morning, deep in your heart, if we were just talking down there at Starbucks and you're just talking back and forth, some of you have men, if I were saying, are you really at peace inside? And on this Father's Day, I think it's really important as a man to ask yourself, am I at peace? Because when a husband's not at peace, when a dad is not at peace, it produces an uneasiness, and it produces anger, and it produces stress, and it can even produce hostility at the place where there should be peace more than anything else in our homes. Now, what do you think is the cause of hostility, of the absence of peace? What do you think is the cause of war? What do you think there's the cause of all this estrangement? How many of you have ever thrown your hands up and said, why can't we just get along? I'm a 60s kid. I was born in 49, so you can do the math. So the 60s wasn't ancient history to me. How many of you remember the peace sign? Remember that? Let's make love, not war. That really worked really good. Since the peace sign was given, millions died in Cambodia. We've had war in the Balkans. And now we're fighting war in Iraq. You kind of put this together. Has the peace sign worked really, really well? How many of you heard of the roadmap to peace? What happened to the roadmap? I think it might be time for us to look at Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5, the key of this entire section of Romans 5, 1 through 11, is peace with God. What I want to present to you is that I think it's time for us to get back to the book of Romans and not look at what the Democrats say about human nature, because I really don't think Obama or Hillary are going to have the answer. And I ultimately don't think that even Fred Thompson is going to have the answer. And you're going to get into some several months here where a lot of people are going to tell you, you know, that they have the answer. Tom Leppard, I don't think, has the answer for Dallas because I think the problem is much bigger than any of us really want to face. We basically, in our culture, you hear it time and time again, is that we're basically really good people and we just don't understand how such good people keep using automatic weapons against one another. We can't understand how such good people keep dividing husband and wife relationships. We can't figure out why such good people, you know, keep blowing apart friendships. We just can't understand why when we hit ourselves with a hammer, we just can't imagine why such good people say, God, you all finished it. You ever ask yourself that? Like when you do something bad, when something really bad, like you smash yourself on a carpentry project, you smash yourself in your thumb, what do you say? God, and when I work construction, I, I heard God's name used repeatedly all day long. Every single thing that the carpenters that I did that went wrong, they didn't praise God for it. They cursed God. And many times I would ask him when I got to know him really well, is do you really believe that the almighty sovereign God actually reared back with his hammer and grabbed your hand and caused you to idiotically smash yourself in the thumb? Do you really believe that? But why do we do that? What I want you to think really hard about it is in Dave Wurtzen, even after knowing Christ all these years, when something really bad happens, It's really easy for me not to come out with, praise Jesus. It's really easy for me to come out with hostility, hostility towards God. And I want you to know something, that the cause of the war in Gaza is not because of race. It's not ultimately because of of they're just different than us. It's because they're angry with God. 
and so are we. In fact, I want you to think hard about the Apostle Paul is saying, in fact, his argument in chapter 118 all the way through 323, where it says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, his whole argument in that section was that there is a really deep-seated hostility between us and God. And what Paul said is that it's not just us being angry with God, but Paul made a very audacious claim that God is angry with us. And the reason that God is angry with us is that when little children are murdered ruthlessly, the just God of the universe gets really angry, and he should. When the streets of Gaza are turned into with like little boys running in between automatic machine gun fire, the God of the universe gets really angry because that's not what the world was supposed to be. That's not what he created our planet to be. But rather than it being his fault, the book of Romans has been saying that it's our fault, that we turned away from the God of peace, that we turned away from the God of love. And what has God done about it? And on this Father's Day, I want you to to see the ground of peace with God. And Paul's got some incredibly good news. So if you're discouraged about Gaza, if you're discouraged about Dallas, if you're discouraged maybe about your own home, if you're discouraged about the lack of peace in some of your friendships, look at chapter 5, verse 1. It says this, Therefore, and that ties us into all Paul's discussion. In fact, these verses are going to summarize a whole bunch of things that we've been talking about the last several weeks together. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, what tenses have been justified? Past, present, or future? You don't have to be an English student. What is that? Past. Isn't that awesome? This is what the Apostle Paul is saying. Therefore, if there's come a moment in your life where you trusted that Jesus died for you, that you trusted that Jesus rose again, that you trusted that Jesus paid the penalty for your sin, If there came that moment in your life where you admitted that you needed Jesus and you opened your life to what he did for you, that in that split second of time, you passed from being under the wrath of God, under the judgment of God, and you became declared acquitted. It's like you were a dirty, rotten, guilty criminal. And the court case is totally against you. And suddenly at the end of your trial, when you're going to get a sentence of eternal damnation, Jesus stands up and says, Father, you and I have a plan together with the, with the Spirit. And I took the penalty that they deserved. And they can walk out here scot-free. They're forgiven. How would you feel if you were a criminal that got that kind of news? Well, that's the news that you got. The moment you believe, it says, therefore, having been in the past declared right before God, forgiven, acquitted, how did that all happen? That's what we're going to learn. The Apostle Paul, since we've been declared righteous, we've been justified. How did it happen? Through faith. It didn't happen because you went to church. It didn't happen because you kept all of God's commandments. It didn't happen because you tried to be a good person. It happened totally because you believed God's promise. That's what Paul taught us in Romans chapter 4. 
Abraham got right with God because God promised him that he would produce the promised child. And Abraham was looking forward to God's great Messiah that would be the promised child that would be the serpent slayer from Genesis 3.15 that would remove the curse of death. And Abraham just simply trusted God's promise. Have you? Think back over your life. Have you been declared righteous by God totally by faith? And what faith means, it means you just rest. When God says that he'll forgive you based upon the work of his son, faith says, I believe it. I trust in it. I depend upon it. That's what it means to believe. We've been declared just before God, right before God, acquitted from his, his, his justice stand, you might say, or his court of justice. We've been acquitted because of Christ. Therefore, and this becomes not just, it's not like a judge in an earthly court might acquit us and might let us go, but a lot of judges that I've been in a courtroom with, they have no relationship with the criminal. Even if the, if the person's been acquitted and they've been released from their condemnation, often a judge has no relationship. Doesn't that make sense? Like we have judges in our church. They don't have close friendships with all the people that come before their court. In fact, most of them have unlisted telephone numbers so that they won't have those kind of relationships, right? Yeah. A judge in our earthly realm wants to stay a little bit of a distance from those that they're judging. Not so with God. This is really important. It says we've not only been justified, but as a result of our trust in Christ, we now have peace with God. You know what that means? The word peace in Greek, the word that's used for peace in Greek means that we're no longer in a relationship of hostility. Romans 1.18 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the wickedness of men. So God is angry. We learn in chapter 1 that he's angry with idolatry. He's angry with sexual immorality. He is still angry with homosexuality in spite of what you hear constantly from the media. But he's also angry with gossip. So don't make homosexuality the big one. Most of you don't wrestle with that as a temptation or as a wickedness. He's also angry with disobedience to parents. We learned in chapter 2 that he's really angry with self-righteous religious people that think they're right with God because they've obeyed all these external rituals and nothing's really happened within and they're still filled with wickedness and they're filled with condemnation. That is what's happening in Gaza. Islam is filled with, I'm going to please Allah by obeying the five pillars. And you've seen the great peace that that produces. Mosques are blown up in Iraq. Gaza and the Palestinians destroy each other, Hamas and Fatah. Why is that happening? Because it's built on a religion. There's no really reconciling love. Allah isn't even thought of being someone that would want to have intimacy with you. He's the great transcendent singularity. He's way out there. And we are never quite sure unless maybe we do some heroic thing that we're going to be right with him. That becomes a ground of tremendous hostility. I want you to realize that many forms of Christianity, some of you have been raised with forms of Christianity that emphasize church membership, that emphasizes your giving, that emphasize all the good ethical things you do, all the social programs you're involved in. It's basically a religion where you earn favor with God. 
You'll never find peace with God that way. I want you to know this morning, because of Jesus and because of his death for you on Calvary, God's not angry with you anymore. Did you hear what I just said? Let me ask you a question. If I, if I said to you, if you could see God the Father's face and we went into his presence together and I said your name, what's the first response on God's, which would be the second person of the Trinity because you'll be able to see Jesus. What would be God, the triune God's response to you? And one of Satan's biggest lies this morning is that many of you feel like he's disappointed. How many of you, just think in your heart, don't raise your hand, but how many of you feel that if I mentioned your name before God, his first response to you would be, they don't quite measure up. They failed again. I'm disappointed in them. That's one of Satan's biggest lies that he ever tells you. Because you have peace with God. And this is what it means. It doesn't just mean, it it means that God isn't hostile towards you anymore. But in Hebrew, we use the word shalom for peace. And Hebrew shalom is not just that we're not enemies anymore, but shalom means that we're in a covenant relationship of intimacy, of closeness. It's like I would use shalom of the relationship that I'm supposed to have with Mary as because she's my covenant partner in our marriage. And so shalom, Mary can expect me to have a a reconciling, joyful, accepting wholeness of love towards her based upon the promise that I made to her in our marriage vows. Shalom is like when you're with a friend and you know that they totally accept you. They want to spend time with you. They love hearing your stories. They love, you know, doing things with you. That's shalom. It has that completeness, that wholeness. It does involve rest. Like, for example, on the seventh day when God rested, he entered into his shalom. He had ceased his work, and now there's a tranquility. An absence, not just an absence of hostility, but a very positive restfulness. Do you have that in your soul? Where are you going to get it? And what the Apostle Paul is saying, where we're going to get it, is the Apostle Paul is declaring to us that when I mention your name, if you've received Jesus as your Savior, how many of you, as you look back over your life, you know for sure I've trusted God's promise in his Son. I've done that. Then what Paul is declaring that God is at peace with you. There's shalom from God's perspective. And on this Father's Day, that needs to be the ground of your peace. And as a pastor teacher, I've really seen that. Like Don High, for example, had some really tough surgery earlier this week. And when I went in, I prayed with Don the day before. I was with him just before he went into the surgery. You know what? Don was like, well, I just can't believe it. This is such a horrible thing. It's such a stressful thing, and I just don't think I can handle it. Man, I've got to go underneath an anesthetic, and, and man, I don't know if the doctor's going to be able to get it all, man. This could be the end, and oh, just, I'm just so scared. Don wasn't like that at all. He was easy. Why? Because Don knows Jesus. He's received Jesus, received a total gift of grace. And therefore, to be honest with you, he had shalom. Is it easy? Are you scared a little bit? Sure. But I also saw the objective, real reality of shalom. 
Sam Jackson, he's right on the edge, and he comes a little bit this way, and I'm really praying the Lord will let him stay with us a little bit, so keep praying really hard. I want Cheryl to be able to enjoy Sam. I want grandchildren to be able to share him. I want to keep being able to go to the hospital to visit somebody and find out that Sam's already been there because he really understands what it's like to spend hours and hours in intense hospital care and surgery and everything. So keep praying for that. But you know what? To be honest with you, when we visit Cheryl and her family, they're not filled with fear and fright. Is it a hard situation? Yeah. But you know what else I see is shalom. There's a peace. And I mentioned those two things because I want you to realize is what we're talking about this morning isn't pretend. It's real. And we can be really honest about it. The Holy Spirit living your life can cause you to really understand that God is at peace with you. And that becomes the ground of our peace. And we have this through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul uses Jesus' full title. That he is our, the deity, that he is Yahweh in the Old Testament. That's what the word Lord means. Jesus means he's the Savior. Christ emphasizes that he's the Messiah. The Jewish people that Paul has been really debating with, especially in chapter 2 and 3, they didn't believe this was the Messiah. So Paul is saying, yes, he is the Messiah. And we have access to God. Look at verse 2. Through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Now, this is a very interesting use of grace. In chapter 1 and chapter 2, we are put under the state of law. It means that we're under the judgment of our conscience that is the internal revelation of God. Not perfect, but pretty accurate. And we're also under, because we have a revelation of the Ten Commandments, we're under God's moral judgment. So we're under a state of law. We live in a country of law. And the Apostle Paul locked us into that country because in that country of law, we really understand we're not going to make it. There's just no way that we're going to be able to make it. When you receive the Lord Jesus as your Savior, the Apostle Paul is saying through our Lord Jesus Christ, we have now gained access into the country of grace, into the place of grace. The idea of gaining access is a word that's used is a king invites me to have entrance into his presence. And in order to come into a king's presence, you had to receive his gracious gift of an invitation. And what the Apostle Paul is saying is that through Jesus, God gave you a gracious invitation to enter into his presence. And presently, by faith, you're doing that. There's also a great anticipation that in the future, you're going to enter into the very glory of God. You're going to experience, in the end, Entering into the radiating, life-giving presence, peace-giving presence, love-giving presence of the eternal God. That's what Paul is saying. Through Jesus, we have gained access, again by our trust in God's promise by faith, in this grace in which we now stand. This is what's really important. You hear a lot about grace in our church. And one of the big temptations is to move out of this country of grace and to start moving into a country of obligations. We do that just like that. And I want you to be really careful not to do that. We stand, like you say, well, Dave, how can I know for sure that I'm going to make it all the way through this life, and one day when I die, I stand before Jesus that he'll equip me 
that I will be given shalom, that I will enter into God's presence. And the Apostle Paul is saying that you can know that as you stand in grace. What is grace? How many of you feel that this week you have done pretty well and you've earned intimacy with God based upon the good performance you've had this week? Any volunteers? So you're not going to make it by law. But you understand what Paul is saying? You know what Paul is saying? He says, I stand before you, and you can stand in God's presence by faith, and you're in grace. God the Father is not rejecting you because you blew it this week, because you struggled with sin this week, because you struggled with doubt this week. God the Father is not turning against you. That's the major point of this chapter. Some of you have been raised in traditions where you're in and out of the family of God. You know, one minute you're really in, the next minute you blow it, and depending upon how deep the sin was, you're out. That's not standing in the grace of God. What does it mean to stand in the grace of God? I stand before you and say, Dave Wordson will never deserve it, but I got it. Dave Wordson will never earn it, but I've received it. Because my precious Savior just gave me the gift of right standing with God. Do you all believe that? That's the greatest good news there is. No other religion on earth teaches like that. It's an incredible, incredible truth. And as a father, it's the greatest legacy that you can give your kids. My daddy gave me that legacy when I was a little kid of five years of age. He preached that message, and I heard it. And he lived that message that I was not right with God because I merited it, but I could just be right with God and I could have peace with God. And God would call me his precious child just as a gift. Did you hear what I just said? A gift, a gift, a gift. There's no sin that you've done in this room. There's no past that you might have that the precious blood of Jesus can't just cover it and enable you to be forgiven. We have access by faith into this country of grace, this state of grace in which we are now standing. How do you respond to that? We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, that's one of those religious phrases. What in the world does that mean? We hope in the glory of God. What in the world does that mean? What it means is we think of hope in English. It means like a dad says, I hope we can go to the Ranger game Saturday night, it means we probably won't go. Because in English, we use the word a hope, especially as dads, when we know we're not going to deliver. That's not at all the way that the Hebrews or the New Testament language uses the word hope. In the New Testament, it means a confident expectation that in the future, God will keep his promises. And he will. And you know what his promise is to you? Now, get this. His promise to you is the hope of his glory. Now, that just goes right by all of you. But his glory is his incredible, radiating presence. Everything that he is, his character, his love, his justice, his truth, his omnipotence, his omniscience. If you were to die right now, if you trusted Christ, you will enter in 
to the radiating presence of God. If you're a young person, one of the things you love to do is to go and hear like a big country star if you're into country music. And the country star, if you're an old lady, then you love, you know, watching Neil Diamond. <laughs> and when you go to the concert, one of the things they use is strobe lights. Like when Garth Brooks comes into Texas Stadium, they turn off all the lights and the, and the lights go out. You know what that is? It's about giving praise. It's about giving adoration. All that light stuff, all that splendor is the hunger in your heart. I want to meet the ultimate light. I want to meet the ultimate star. I want to meet that ultimate person that won't let me down, that will make life meaningful. And to enter into God's glory is that one day, when all the smoke is cleared in my life, when all the smoke is cleared in history, that it's going to be a realm of glorious, infinite, eternal light and illumination. And all that you think of of being in a in most incredible garden, the most incredible city, but most of all the incredible presence, that's what God has ahead for you. So if you go into surgery and you're not sure you're going to make it, you're not looking through this horrible, bleak existence like the ancient Greeks were. You're saying, Jesus, if I don't make it through this surgery, I'm coming home, and I'm going to experience light and peace and eternity and joy, and, and I can't even describe what glory really means. God created us for glory in Genesis chapter 1, and Paul is saying that through the gift of Jesus that the glory is restored in us. It means for a child of God when you die, instead of facing God's wrathful judicial judgment, you enter into his glory, and it's a pure gift. Now that should cause you to rejoice, amen? That is incredible, incredible good news. The apostle Paul said, not only so, but we also rejoice in suffering because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. Right now, we don't live in that perfect realm of heavenly glory. Right now, we face testing. Right now, we face suffering. And contrary to a lot of the teaching that we received, the Apostle Paul says, as those that are entering into the shalom of God, we're experiencing this time of testing. That as you go through life, you're going to have really tough trials. And the Apostle Paul is saying that those trials will be used to refine us, to bring us like a, a silver that all the impurity is taken away, and it produces proving character in our life, and it also strengthens our hope. And this hope does not disappoint us because God poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he's given to us. You see, at just the right time when we're still powerless, that's what we learned about, in chapter 1, it uses the word weak and perilous. That means that we're perilous to get right with God through our own strength. Perilous to overcome our sin. Christ died for the ungodly. We were weak in our sin. Christ died for the ungodly. I want you to feel his, his arguments. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man. But, but though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. What it's saying is that a soldier will die for you because he made an oath as a Marine to the Constitution of the United States. It's saying that a fireman 
will run into the Twin Towers and give his life trying to save you. We all know illustrations of that. We also know as a dad that if you see one of your kids being swept away in a river, you'll give your life trying to save your son. That's a good man. It says a righteous person is the normal covenant relationship that a fireman has, a policeman has, that a soldier has. The idea of scarcely but good man has the idea of those that are related to you as family, more intimate. But here's what it says. But God commended his love toward us when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since we've now been justified by blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him. That means we became his friends, that we became intimate with him, that no longer was there hostility between us through the death of his son. Paul argues from the lesser, if Jesus died for you and reconciled you when you were a sinner, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? Jesus is risen to the dead. Today on this Father's Day, Jesus is alive in your heart by faith if you trusted him. And Paul is arguing if Jesus died for you when you were rejecting him, you were hostile towards him, you were perilous in your sins, now that you believed in him and Jesus has sent his loving Holy Spirit into your heart to demonstrate God's love, how much more now? do you think you're going to be saved from God's wrath and you're going to be all right in the end? And he closes with this. Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. What it's saying is that that on this Father's Day, we can rest because God loved us when we were sinners and he gave his son to die for us. Now that you've crossed over into the realm of grace, And you have become not God's enemies, but his children and his friends. How much more now do you think you can just rest that your hope is going to prove not to be disappointing? As a daddy, the greatest legacy that you can give to your children is that legacy of building your life. If you're a daddy that your job hasn't worked out the way that you thought it would. Some of our daddies have just lost their jobs. If you're reconciled with God and you have the hope of glory, does it destroy your personality? Does it mean that you're nothing? Not at all. It means you're going through a time of testing. You're going through a time of suffering, and you're going to come out on the other end pure gold. I'm going to ask Mary to come up by... and share about her dad. Mary's dad, I think it's real important for us to remember our older saints and those that have already gone home to glory. And Mary's dad, you hear a lot about my dad, but Mary's dad was just one of our elders in our church family. And I met Mary just to share how her dad really lived out what I shared today and brought joy into their home because he believed in this incredible hope in Jesus alone, believing God's grace. And I'm going to ask Mary to pray as we close the service for all the dads Uh, that are here, that the Lord will help us to have peace with God in our homes, because that's what's going to help us to have peace with our wives, with our children, and with our friends. And Mary, share with us about that. My dad was raised in church, but he didn't know the Lord Jesus until he was 19. When he went with my uncle, I believe, down to a Percy Crawford rally and God really got a hold of his heart, and he accepted the Lord Jesus as his Savior, and his life was changed forever. He went into the service, and 
used his Navy experience to grow in the Lord and not wander away from the Lord. He married my mom, and they were teammates for life. He was not a perfect dad, but he was perfect in the fact that he imitated the Lord Jesus. He was never afraid to ask for forgiveness, to admit that he was wrong. He taught me how to have a temper, but he also taught me how to ask the Lord for forgiveness. His example to me is still lasting. I mean, he's been gone for four years now, but I think the greatest, the greatest thing he taught me was to have hope and to have peace. And that's most vividly brought out in my memory by his last couple of years. Many of you know that in 2001, December, he had a massive stroke. And I spent, I think it was probably two or three days with him curled up in a fetal position, totally out, uh, out of consciousness. And I thought we were going to lose him. And by some miracle of God's grace, Dr. Ledbetter said it was only God's grace and only God's miracle that brought him totally back to us, back to the place where he could talk again, he could walk again, he could do all the things that my dad used to do. He was even back to repairing washers and dryers at Wycliffe. A year later, God had a different plan for his life. And in September, his back went out. He had tremendous back pain. And for four months, we walked through what ended up being the valley, the shadow of death. My dad had some really bad things happen to him in his life. And one of them was in 1981. We had spent Christmas with my parents. We had driven home the day before New Year's Eve. We got home New Year's Eve morning about 5 o'clock. The kids had thrown up all the way home. So I spent the day washing sleeping bags that were in the back of our suburb, I mean our station wagon. I was really tired, and about 5 o'clock, my dad called up and told me that my little brother, David, who was 15, was gone. He was killed by a drunk driver, and my nephew was in critical condition in the hospital. I'd just been with my brother the day before. At the funeral and during the week, Waiting for the funeral, my dad's statement to everyone he met was, my God has been faithful all of my life. He's not going to change. He's not going to let me down now. He's going to remain faithful. That's the kind of legacy my dad left me. And the end of November of 2002, my dad had been struggling, had lost a lot of his mind, Hadn't been able to walk from September until December. Hadn't gotten out of bed. And we had to make some tough decisions as a family. My dad was not able to communicate most of the time. And when he did, sometimes it didn't make sense or you couldn't even hear him. And we decided because of his condition, because the antibiotics weren't cutting, 
the infection that he had because his quality of life was horrendous that we needed to stop medications and put him on hospice. And being the designated driver in this situation, I had to talk to my dad and say, okay, God gave me a little window of opportunity when no one was there and my dad was cognitive. And I stood at his bedside and I said, hey, dad, this is what's happening and this is what we've decided. We're going to take all of the medications off. He was a diabetic. I mean, everything was going to not be there to assist him. Do you know what that means, Dad? Yes. I said, are you ready for it? Yes. And then he looked at me and he said, are you ready for it? <laughs> of course, I started bawling. And then he looks at me and his cute little grin and he growled at me and I some of you have heard this before but he used to growl at us when we were kids and scare the snot out of us and he did scare me that time but then I just started laughing and he started laughing he had total confidence at that point in time of where he was going because he had put his faith and trust in the Lord Jesus he had no fear of death well, we took him out of that place and put him in a home, not knowing how long God had for him. And only 10 days later, both of my brothers had been able to come down. Dad went into a comatose state for four days, and we thought, this is it. And then all of a sudden, he came out of that. But during that comatose time, I put on hymns without words just the instrumental hymns. And in his out-of-conscious state, he was humming along with the hymns. He even pointed at angels that were at the base of his bed. And the thing that he taught me through that whole experience, he died on the Lord's Day on Sunday afternoon, December fifteenth, two 2002. And his legacy, the biggest thing he taught me was there is no fear in the biggest enemy and the biggest challenge that we have in life. Because if we have what Dave taught this morning about, if we have hope in Jesus Christ, because he died on the cross and he rose again and he forgives our sins, we can have total peace with God and total confidence that we will see him as soon as he takes our life. And so there's no reason for fear. And because of that, I'm going to see my daddy again. I'm going to see him again. I'm going to see the Lord Jesus. And I have total peace. I have no fear of death now because God gave me a daddy that taught me the way to faith. And I want to have every dad that's here stand up right now. I want to have the people around them. If there's a dad here that's by himself, 
I want him to stand up, and I want the women and the children that are around these dads to stand up with them, put their hand on them, and pray with me. Dear Lord Jesus, I just thank you so much that you are our daddy, that you give us your word. If we study it, these men who are my brothers, my father, some of them, my sons, some of them, These men can imitate you because you've given us who you are through the revelation of your word. They can imitate you because they have the Lord Jesus in their heart. And Lord, from the bottom of my heart, I pray that they can set an example for their families and for their children that my dad did. That they can be humble and walk boldly because of the presence of the Lord Jesus in their lives. I just thank you so much that you've given them to their families as fathers, that you've given them the privilege to be the heads of their homes and to be the ones that point their wives and their children towards you. Lord, may they fulfill the task and may they honor you and may they have the hope and the peace that only you can give in their lives. In Jesus' precious name, amen. For more information on materials available through Truth Encounter, please write to us at Truth Encounter, Box 580, Midlothian, Texas, 76065, or you can contact us on the web at www.truthencounter.com. Our telephone number is 1-888-668-7884.